This Scientific American podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, your source for audiobooks and more. Audible.com features 100,000 titles, including Walter Isaacson's biography, Albert Einstein, His Life and Universe, narrated by Edward Herman, and Stephen Hawking's The Theory of Everything, narrated by Michael York. Right now, Audible.com is offering a free audiobook and a one-month trial membership to the Scientific American audience. For details, go to audible.com slash Siam, S-C-I-A-M. Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast, Science Talk, posted on October 29th, 2013. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... I mean, I think an important point here is to define pervert um, and what we mean when we use that term. It's a very loaded term now. And that is scientist and author Jesse Baring. He's a psychologist and the former director of the Institute of Cognition and Culture at Queen's University, Belfast. He now lives and writes in Ithaca in upstate New York, where he produced his latest work, Perv, the Sexual Deviant in All of Us. As I said the last time Jesse was on the podcast, the discussion that follows is at times frank and, let's call it, earthy. So if you have sensitive sensibilities, just just uh, turn back now. Jesse and I spoke at Scientific American. Okay, Jesse. Yes. Jesse Baring. When are you gonna when are you gonna write a book that I can read on the subway again without having to cover I'm working the cover. On it. Yeah, I'm working on it. This um, is perv the sexual deviant in all of us and for some reason that for the life of me I cannot figure out there's a picture of a sheep on the cover. Yeah, that was I mean that was the publisher's idea, but I, I went along with it obviously. Um I think it's kind of like a Rorschach test in terms of what people see with the sheep on the cover. You know, um, it's got multiple meanings. I, I do talk about zoophilia, so it's got that much more explicit meaning of bestiality, of course. But um, but also, it's the sort of innocence, the lamb um, on the cover too, and a lot of people see that. That one's so, never even occurred to me. No, well, that, that's a, that says a lot about you, Steve. Actually, <laughs> you know, you you bring up an interesting point, interesting to me anyway. And I've I've heard th- there's been some discussion of this, but it's always made me wonder why there wasn't more concern on the part of, you know, the various people who you might think would be concerned about such things, about the interspecies relationships on Star Trek. Mm -hmm. I mean, technically... That's bestiality. It's bestiality, right? That's a good point, yeah. But, I mean, even in in reality, in terms of our, you know, historical relations with Neanderthals and interbreeding with um, other species, that is technically zoophilia or bestiality. Maybe not zoophilia, but it is is bestiality in that sense. Technically, Um, although we'll cut them slack because they didn't have... At least they were hominid species. Exactly. um, Star Trek, I'm not entirely sure where they would fit in the taxonomy, but... uh, Humanoid, I think, but that's a whole different bit of nonsense. Yeah, yeah, you talk in the book about... uh, your own uh, interesting relationship oh, right, with yeah, images yeah. of Neanderthals. My first experience, yes, was with uh, um, seeing a nude Neanderthal male that was uh, quite um, attractive and, and physically, except for the face, really. The face wasn't too appealing, but uh, <laughs> in terms of musculature and um, uh, body morphology, it was very right. human-like, and it was arousing to me as a, a young boy. Yeah. <laughs> no. One of the interesting things about this very interesting book is 
Oh, and I did want to point out that was mm-hmm. before the invention of the internet, of course. That oh, of course. I was limited in terms of my uh, <laughs> ability to find nude males, and that uh, my father's anthropology textbook that contained an image of a Neanderthal was uh, the only thing I could find. Right, because you had, what did you say in the book? You had copies of Men's Fitness piling up? I did, yeah. That was a, that was a, a slight um, collection of mine, the, the Men's Fitness mag- magazines. I thought that my mother would um, get a hint by that, but she didn't, apparently. It was very homoerotic. I mean, there were lots of things in there that, you know, really struck a with me as an adolescent. Um, the, the book discusses... We're going right into this, aren't we? We're oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> to, to some degree, uh, it's very culturally and temporally dependent what is considered normal and what's considered a perversion. Mm-hmm. While there are cross, major cross-cultural differences in terms of sexual deviance and what is considered to be um, inappropriate or harmful or uh, offensive and... It does raise a lot of deep, meaningful, philosophical questions in terms of human sexuality. Um, if one culture sees something as entirely harmless or normative and another sees it as criminal and antisocial, w- which society is correct in that sense? Is there an objective um, uh, criterion for determining what is okay and what is not okay in terms of human sexuality? And it's, uh, you know, it raises all sorts of interesting questions philosophically to me in terms of human morality. And I think that's why I've been a, it's sort of, for multiple reasons, I'm interested in sex. But I think for, 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 you know, the biggest reason is because it really sort of taps into these deep constructs of, uh, the, the evolution of morality. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, the moral question now that I think most people who would consider themselves to be very open minded mm-hmm. would be, is anybody getting hurt? Exactly, yeah. But even that's a difficult question. I mean, to me, like, I think that we're spending too much time thinking about these uh, questions of what is normal and what is natural and not enough time thinking about what is harmful. Um, so I think that we need to move the discussion toward the question of harm, but also do a better job in terms of defining clearly what is harmful. Um, because what's harmful to one person is not harmful to another person. You know, if an incredibly beautiful woman came and gave a, a lap dance to me <laughs> right now, I would probably be traumatized in many ways. But I know that you might not be, you know, a heterosexual male or, you know, my, my straight brother or my lesbian friends wouldn't be traumatized by that experience. But I wouldn't particularly enjoy it and I would find it invasive and not terribly um, a, a positive experience. Right. In the book, it's Kate Upton specifically. Kate Upton, yes. Because I would imagine most heterosexual males find her incredibly sexually attractive. I, I, I appreciate her aesthetic beauty, of course. Um, she's a you know, knockout, but um, she's not sexually arousing to me. Um, and ironically, you know, her uncle is a very conservative Republican congressman. I didn't know that. That's, yeah. that's interesting, yeah. So... Um, so so what's harmful to one person, person is not harmful to another person. And I think that that is problematic when we're thinking about um, both uh, the sort of clinical diagnoses that involve this issue of harmfulness uh, to another and also um, the legal system in terms of what is harmful. Um, because if you just sort of throw out this question, you know, this, this, this issue of harm and just generalize that to everybody, I think that's, that becomes very, very complicated, again, philosophically. And yet there would seem to be a moral imperative to protect certain individuals from harm who are not in a position to protect themselves. The most vulnerable members of society, obviously. And, you know, there are, there are lots of 
dark issues that I've got that I that I went to in, mm-hmm. in, with perv in terms of uh, you know sex with animals, zoophiles, sex with children, sex with the elderly, sex with uh, individuals that have different types of um, uh, disabilities. Those are all very important issues, and I think that we have to think about them very carefully and understand um, uh, the nature of the questions that we're asking at a level that applies um, to to the individuals engaged in these actions, and um, and really be able to identify what is harmful to one person. So I, I suppose, you know, if I had to put a, a label on it, I would be considered a, a sexual libertarian in the sense that um, human sexuality is the business of the individuals involved in the act. Um, and, but we do have a, we do have a, a, a moral mission basically to protect people that maybe misjudge their own intentions or what is, um, uh, what is consensual to them at the time and then sort of regretting that later. So I, and I, 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 I completely appreciate the fact that these are really complicated issues, mm-hmm. but, um, you, you talk in the book about, uh, since we're talking about this particular subject, um, maybe we should discuss the case in the book, the one that Dr. Schlesinger on the radio got involved with. Right. That so, study. Right. So there were, um, this was a study that came out in um, the late 1990s uh, by Bruce Rind, who is a psychologist who, uh, who, who labels himself a, um, uh, an expert in intergenerational sexuality. So he's particularly interested in, in major sort of gaps in age and maturation between the sexual partners. Which includes, um, uh, you know, George Clooney and anyone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, something like that. But also, I mean, in, in terms of the more sort of delicate territory, you know, pedophilia, sort of an extreme example. But also, but also, uh, adolescents having sex with people that are above the legal age of consent. So you get somebody that's like 16 or 17 having sex with a 20 or right. 20 year old or 21 year old, uh, and the extent to which that's harmful to the younger party that's involved in the in the relationship. Right. We're not talking about. A ten-year-old and a thirty-year-old. There's a big difference between a six-year-old and a sixteen-year-old, right. uh, or a seven-year-old and a seventeen-year-old that's having sex with somebody that's twenty or twenty-one versus somebody who's fifty or sixty or something sure. like that. And as you talk in the book, I mean, different countries have wildly different ages of consent. Right. Right. Chile it used to be twenty, right, and now it's what sixteen? I think. I, I think forget. it's yeah, it's, it's definitely gone. I mean, and they go in different direct. They go both, you know, historically within societies, uh, the age of consent goes has fluctuated both uh, increasing and decreasing. Mm-hmm. Um, and they range from anywhere from 12 to 21. And at um, one point, one of them was seven, I think. Oh, but, the state of Delaware. That was in the oh, United the state States, Delaware, actually. Right. This was, during, this was uh, sort of prior to the Civil War, mm-hmm. uh, uh, sort of around that time in the, mid, in the mid-19th century or so. And we would all agree that now that that's nuts. It's absurd. I mean, right. it's like it's mind-boggling that, any, that Delaware would have a legal age of consent of seven. It's, yeah. just, it's just unconscionable. But, um, but they did. So I think, you know, with, with the exceptions of those extreme examples aside, um, you know, when you've got differences of like, you know, in some societies it's 16, in other societies it's 20 or 21, who is right, who is wrong, um, uh, you, you realize the sort of arbitrariness of, you know, sexual maturation in terms of right. what is, uh, you know, when, when, um, in adolescence you're prepared to engage in sex, in, in, you know, sexual activity with somebody that's on the other side of the legal line. So I think it all has to do with the, um, the, the power differential, of course, the, uh, perhaps the, the degree of the age disparate, uh, discrepancy, um, uh, but, you know, to me, these are interesting questions, again, because I guess they, they sort of tap into these philosophical questions, and, and a lot of academics are not interested or prepared to go there. They wouldn't touch these, touch these questions with a 10-foot pole. Um, 
if you think about if it's all a question of sort of mental preparedness and sort of emotional uh, maturity, um, then why you know why is it legal to have sex with a you know somebody with Down syndrome that's 18, right. um, has, who has the the mental abilities of a, an eight or nine year old? Um, you know these are questions that I don't think that we're asking. I think that we should probably look at them a little bit more closely. So the the Ryan study specifically. Yes, the Ryan yeah. study suggested that um, for adolescents that had sex with uh, um, legal adults, uh, and these again, these were, these were not children, but these were like I don't know, 16, 17, 18, 16, 17 year olds that were having sex with people that were in their twenties or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, they did not suffer any sort of egregious uh, mental damage or sort of emotional uh, problems as a consequence of that. Uh, consensual sexual activity with an older partner. And when I say consensual, I mean in the psychological sense of that word consensual, not in the legal sense of mm-hmm. the word consensual. Because legally, in the United States, of course, uh, you can't consent to sex unless you're a certain age. But psychologically, um, uh, consent is not a, a an age-bound question. It's a, it's a question of mental willingness, essentially. So the big, the big factor in terms of, of suffering psychological damage long-term was the fact that these people did not give consent to having sex with somebody that was um, a legal adult. Uh, but people that uh, were 16, 17, they were having sex with slightly older partners, but on the other side of the legal line, did not suffer long-term psychological damage. But Laura, Schles- Laura Schlesinger, who you mentioned uh, with her conservative talk show, sort of um, stumbled upon these findings uh, in the late 1990s. And they were published, I should say, in, in um, Psychological Bulletin, I believe, which is the flagship journal of the American Psychological uh, Association. Association. So it was a really good journal. It was vetted by experts, and they uh, sort of verified the the quality of the research itself. Um, but she found it, she thought that it was sort of a pedophilia sort of apologia, that um, that it's it's awful that uh, you know anybody would s- suggest that it's 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 okay essentially or it's not damaging for um, older adolescents to have sex with somebody that's you know twenty or twenty one or something like that, and um, it became a scan it be- became a major scandal. It became you know it's uh, Congress found out about it. They you know they basically sort of uh, passed a, a legislation condemning the research itself, saying despite these empirical findings. Um, it's still categorically harmful to have sex with somebody under the age of 18 if you're if you're a legal adult. Doesn't matter what science says. Um, if it's uh, um, if it's uh, if they're under the age of 18, basically, it's got to be harmful. Mm-hmm. And of course, no, you know, no, no, no senator or congressman would would go against the grain and you know want to be looked at as a pervert and sort of saying, oh, it's okay to have sex with somebody that's you know 16 or 17. Right. No so harm they're done. all just. Right. Voting on it, uh, right, right. It's to, a, to get it. It became a much way. more moralistic type of issue rather than a scientific issue, right? Although there was one abstention. There was one abstention, and I can't remember the I can't remember his name, but he was but he was actually a, a politician that had a background in psychology that um, was able to actually look at the data and interpret it obje- more objectively than this sort of knee jerk emotional reaction. I uh, it's in one of the footnotes. I'll uh, well when when you buy the book and read it, you'll find it. Um, <laughs> You know, since we're talking about the politicians right now, um, you know, this this is strictly my personal view. But when if you were to ask me who's the biggest pervert in the country, right. I uh, right now, yeah, <laughs> right, right now, right who's now. the biggest pervert? You know, I would say Rick Santorum. 
Now, this is a guy who conceives of himself. I think Dan Savage would agree with you. Yeah, actually. probably. And now, Santorum would think Dan Savage yes, is a pervert. Exactly, yeah. But when I see Santorum, it seems that he is incredible. He thinks about sex more than anybody else in the country. Mm. He's based his entire political career on castigating people for having the wrong kind of sex. Right, right. And well, I think, yeah, so I think, I mean, I think an important point here is to define pervert um, and what we mean when we use that term. It's a very loaded term now. But um, historically, the word pervert uh, had nothing to do with human sexuality. It was all about uh, religion. If you were perverted, basically, that meant that you were going against the word of God. So an atheist was a pervert, and that's how the word was used for, for centuries until the sexologists in the late 19th century, Havelock Ellis in particular, um, Croft, Croft Ebing, Richard von Croft Ebing, another uh, Austro-German psychiatrist, started using the word pervert to refer to people whose sexual orientations or whose sexual psychosexual identity basically went against the normative pattern in terms of uh, the sort of conventional sort of, um, you know, pseudo-religious sort of interpretation of, uh, you know, sex or reproductive purposes, heterosexual activity. And... Uh, you know, per- so, so I think when we're talking about perversion, to me, it's, it's, it's critical to define it in the sense of, if we're gonna use this sort of in the convention, in, in, in the way that it was used historically as going against, uh, what was right, that was the, that was the proper definition. I think that we need to think about perversion in the sense of action or behavior, and not, ju- not just in terms of desires or, uh, a psychosexual identity. Because you can't, to me, you can't be perverted if, uh, if you're just if you just have a set of thoughts, um, to me perversion should be limited to uh, antisocial behavior, sexual behavior that causes genuine harm to another. That is a true pervert. I mean, if we went by thoughts, we'd all be in prison for murder. If you absolutely, yeah, um, and you know, I think that lots of people, if you if you really sort of uh, unpeeled the layers and looked at people's sexual desires, you'd find a lot of really interesting things in terms of what turns people on. I mean, you mentioned Havelock Ellis, and you talk about in the book. Now, here's a guy who publicly is describing what is normal yeah. and and yet considers his own rather interesting sexual interest to be uh, perfectly harmless. And it was, really. I mean, yeah, it is he, harmless, he, but it's still so Havlock, it's not right. what everybody would find. So uh, Havelock Ellis, was a, he was a British sexologist in the late 19th century during the Victorian era, actually, and he had a very sort of liberal approach to human sexuality, and he was one of the first to sort of look at sexual deviation from an amoral, not immoral, but from an amoral scientific perspective, and really just try to understand it. He was much more sympathetic to homosexuals than a lot of people at the time. He just saw it as sort of a natural uh, expression of human sexuality, and he was one of the first to, to look at uh, homosexual behavior in other species, for instance, and other cultures. But uh, um, he he was the one that is most um, that that most people sort of associate with coining the word pervert as applying it to human sexual deviance. But it's interesting because he, like you said, he had his own sort of interesting peccadilloes in the sense that he he was attracted to women who were um, he was attracted to women who urinated while standing upright. That was really the only thing that could turn him on. He was a urophile. Uh, he called them pizuses, that he, uh, this was the only thing that could cure his impotence, basically, was to look at women who were standing up while urinating in the toilet. And, uh, he didn't see anything wrong with it. He didn't have any shame associated with it. It was just the thing that he liked. And he thought that, you know, lots of men throughout history were attracted to women that were urinating. Um, and he talked about it quite openly. 
so it was interesting that the, the the man who coined the word pervert was a Europhile, and you know that was the thing that really turned him on. Uh, there's a there's another fascinating story in the book about. Uh, you know, a lot of these uh, insights are gained just by interviewing people. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's this guy, and he's he's heterosexual. He's got a kind of regular job. He, every everything seems, you know, cookie cutter suburban regular guy about him. Except it turns out he's really turned on by the idea of having sex with an amputee. Right, so he was an acrotomophile. This is what an amputee fetishist is uh, known as properly in the paraphilia literature. And his and, wife plays along. She's well, that was an interesting case because yeah. he, um, he, his father was a physician, and from his earliest, his his earliest sexual memory was basically flipping through the pages of his physician father's textbook, textbooks, and and looking at images of attractive women that uh, were completely naked. But they had various amputations. Um, this was his first um, uh, exposure to a naked woman, basically, and his first memory of being sexually aroused when he was a young child. When he grew up, he went into the army, and I think he served overseas for a while. Um, he this was, I think, during World War II. He was, you know, looking. He was hiring prostitutes that had amputations, and that was the thing that really turned him on. Um, when he got back to the States, he, he actually found a woman that had, um, she had a, a cancerous tumor or something in, in one of her, her legs, I think, and she had had an, uh, an amputation. And he fell in love with her. And he was attracted to her originally because she had this amputated leg, but he also fell in love with her as a person. Um, she got very upset one day, however, when she found sort of a stash of his amputee-related porn um, and because suddenly, he had never he had never had this conversation with her about why he found her attractive to begin with, right? And she and was very self conscious about it. She feels objectified, absolutely. And she um, she and he was I think he was an accountant or a lawyer yeah. or something like that. Like yeah. like you said, a very sort of uh, from all appearances yeah, leading totally a very right normal way. life story. Yeah. And he um, uh, she she made a big deal about it essentially because she felt like you know he he was using her for her weird you know for this weird fetish. Um, and he cut off his penis in the end because – I shouldn't be laughing, actually. This is a horrible story. But the psychoanalyst sort of looking at this case you know, pitched it in this sort of psychoanalytical uh, interpretation of Freudian and uh, analysis of the Oedipal complex and castration anxiety that he looked at these women when he was a child as basically relieving his castration anxiety – by, you know, they were martyring their own limbs, so right. therefore he could save his own penis. And when his wife took away his only outlet for sexual expression, which was amputation, looking at this pornography or, or having sex with her, um, all of a sudden this Oedipal conflict sort of reemerged in his 40s and he cut off his own penis. Um, that- so some, some you know, really complicated psychology going on here, uh, you know, a never-ending source of uh, questions and, uh, uh, and issues. <laughs> That's that's amazing. I was actually thinking of the other guy who was during the interviews. He realized. Oh, that guy. Yeah, yeah that's a different. That's story. a much milder <laughs> yes, yes. case. Slightly milder. Yeah. So this was a guy that another amputee fetishist who. Um, and his wife was not an amputee, but she no, would make she would leave. simulate having right. an amputation while they were having sex right. and in different ways. And she was she she went along with it. And she right. was kind of happy to do this for him because she this this turned him on. But um, he. He didn't know where this 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 sort of attraction to amputees um, had come from, but um, 
you know, in, in interviewing him and sort of further reflection about his early childhood experience uh, with women and so on, he remembered being a child of, you know, about the age of six or seven or so and sitting under a table where the neighbor, an attractive woman, a neighbor was visiting them and uh, she had a cast and she was having... So he he was basically under the table at her feet with she had this cast on her leg and she was having a conversation with her husband and he said something pretty innocuous like when is it coming off and he of course the husband was referring to the cast but he interp- the child interpreted this as um the, the, the leg. leg yeah and somehow this became eroticized to him because it was like sort of the smell of the cast and the the fact that her leg you know coming off again this was a Freudian interpretation that somehow this relieved his castration anxiety um, and from that point forward he had this intense desire for women that had amputated legs right and this case ends more happily well he married a woman that didn't have an amputation but she like 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 we said she was happy to kind of you know play the role of having an amputation right. in nobody cuts anything off no 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 severed penis in this it, case it makes me think uh, i don't think it's in your book but um a few years ago a lot of press in in the city here the coach of the football team the new york jets uh it came out that he he's a foot fetish guy mm-hmm. and this was a big story but only for like two days because mm-hmm. he was having these um, oh, I, text messages. I don't remember what it was. But it's all with his own wife. Mm-hmm. And I think because – this is my theory – because he's engaging in this you know, somewhat out of the ordinary activity, mm-hmm. but with his own wife – it wasn't lascivious enough to right. really capture the public's attention. Right. But it was enough to – and I think it's awful, actually, that it would be made – it would be scandalized in some sense, that this is um, something to make fun of or, um, you know, it was shocking right. because – I mean, can you think of anything more harmless than having a foot fetish? I mean, it's it's podophilia in that sense of, you know, having an attraction to somebody's feet. I mean – who cares? I mean, it, it seems it's, it's I think it's shameful to for us as a society that we would make an issue of something as completely harmless as that, especially between somebody you know, in his own personal life with his wife. I mean, right. Well, that's the key. I mean, I think had he been um, having uh, relationships with about people's. Well, yes, certainly <laughs> with cloven hooves. Yes. But with let's say with, you know, a dozen women around the country, mm. every time the Jets would fly to another city, he right. had somebody there. Then it might have been a two-week story. Right. But because it's just, you know, so he's texting his wife. Who yeah. cares? Yeah, we're, it's I a mean, two-day story. The public, I mean, we're the bad guys in that scenario. Right. We're not the good guys. Um, yeah, because when, we're the voyeurs. Absolutely, yeah. Um, he has nothing to be ashamed about. I think yeah. we have much more to be ashamed about the fact that we are making um, uh, a bigger issue about this than, than it deserves. And like I say in the book, you know, we and the subtitle of the book is "We Are All Sexual Deviants," right? Uh, and I think that's true. If you, you know, if you really get inside people's heads deeply enough, or look at their internet browsers or something like that, or you know, um, look at whatever uh, physiologically arouses them at some point um, at, in their history, their mm-hmm. autobiography, you'll find something that's quite interesting that's deviant um, from the normative. Give me an example of of something that maybe people would would think of as, um, you know, completely innocuous that that would still be considered. I mean, like the foot fetish is mm. one of them. Well, one of the examples that I give in the book is a um, a case of Czechoslovakian identical twins. Uh, these are oh, yeah. these are gay 
these are gay males that are in their early 20s um, and they are um, porn actors, basically. And they're known for having, um, you know, really explicit triple X rated sex on film with, with each, each other. other. You know, they're having full blown anal intercourse. Um, and the, the knee jerk reaction to that is that that's just wrong. That's, in, that's just obviously wrong. It's disgusting. You know, how can, you know, siblings have sex like that? And, um, but, uh, if you force people to really sort of articulate why it's wrong, they really run into um, a, a, a mental block in terms of explaining why it's wrong. It's, mm-hmm. it, there's actually a psychological term for this. It's called moral dumbfounding. <laughs> it feels wrong, you know, at a gut level. It feels, you know, it's aversive to us and it's gross, but we can't really explain why it's morally wrong. Right. And in this case, you know, there's no threat, obviously, of uh, any sort of genetic defects of impregnation as the consequence of having sex. They're both, you know, consenting adults. Um, they both are happy and completely, you know, romantically inclined toward one another. In fact, um, outside of the porn studio, they consider themselves to be romantic partners and that, you know, they are each other's lives, basically, and they've dated each other. You know, they, they see each other as being their, their spouses. Um, and they don't have a problem with it. You know, society has a problem with it. But if you force people to really explain why it's wrong, you know, people struggle with that. Right. You get the response. Well, it's just obviously wrong. It's just obviously wrong. Yeah. But um, if you if you strip away all the you know, if you're really sort of scientifically oriented and scientifically minded and you take away all the religious components uh, associated with uh, sexual deviancy, it becomes really hard to, to explain why we have a problem with it. Something like that. So that would be one example, I suppose. Uh, but another another example would be, you know, uh, I give the case of, uh, and this was actually based on a study where they uh, looking at this question of moral dumbfounding and asking people to, you know, um, uh, to explain why they think something that feels intuitively or at a gut level to be wrong is wrong. And this is uh, necrophilia, a necrophilia club where people like having sex with corpses, um, but they only have sex with the corpses of of members, of fellow members. So once the once somebody in the necrophilia club dies. Then the other members or a particular person in the group will have sex with the corpse of the of the former member, and you know they 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 preemptively eliminate any possible cause for um, moral concern. So, you know the the person having sex with the the dead body is you know wearing a condom. The person who's having sex with the uh, the dead person. Um, uh, is doesn't have any problems with their own sexuality, so they're, they're experiencing no personal distress from being a necrophile. Um, the family members are either perfectly accepting of the necrophilia of the person that's died, or um, they don't have any family members. Um, the you know so so they eliminate every possible sort of uh, uh, counter uh, criticism for why it would be wrong. And yet, when people uh, are asked, you know. What do you think of this? Is it wrong? They say, well, it's wrong. It's definitely wrong, but I can't really explain why. <laughs> uh, see, now, if, let's say you have a thing for redheads. Don't you feel much better? Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's just that what could be more... Dead redheads are the different. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, that's the old yes. line about politicians, you know. Oh, yeah. Right. They'll, 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 they'll win that. unless they're... Uh, well, this was when all politicians were male. They'll win the election unless they're found with a uh, a live boy or a dead, dead girl. girl. Yeah, I, I remember that one. Right, <laughs> that's certainly true. Or um, or a goat in bed or something, or a, a sheep like the cover of my book. Oh, that's a fascinating <laughs> study, actually. In the in the book, you talk about 
the sheep and goat babies who are raised by the, the other species' parents right. and what happens. Right. So, um, you know, one of the major hurdles with sexual uh, – with, with, with research in sexual deviancy is the fact that you can't really do controlled experiments because it's completely unethical, obviously. You can't take – With a, humans, yeah. With human beings. You can't take, you know, a perfectly healthy group of, you know – infant children and like expose them to one set of conditions and a control group and expose them to another set of conditions and wait for 18 years and see who grows up to be sexually deviant or a pervert. Um, but uh, you can do that with animals, uh, in some cases, <laughs> anyway, to look at sort of the development of, of sexuality in other species. And uh, this particular study that you're mentioning um, involved you know, um, uh, baby sheep and baby goats and um at birth, they were uh, switched so that they were raised by the opposite species. And um, what what the researchers found essentially was that the male sheep and goats, these ungulates, um, grew up to only be sexually aroused by the adoptive species, uh, the opposite sex. So the the baby goats were grew up to be the baby male goats grew up to be uh, adult males that could only get aroused by sheep um, and the baby uh, sheep the baby male sheep would only grow out to be aroused by the uh, the, the female uh, goats but the but the females would go both ways the females would be sexually aroused by either the sheep or the goats um, so it didn't matter who they were raised by or their developmental experiences they're were, they were basically sort of um, impervious to the developmental experiences even though they were completely identical to the to the males so um, uh, what that suggests, at least in those species, is the fact that there's much more sexual fluidity with female sexuality than there is for male sexuality. Males seem to be much more influenced by their early developmental experiences in, in terms of what they become locked into or uh, the sort of circumscribed uh, 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 nature of their sexual arousal, which is why, presumably, with human beings at least, uh, if you generalize this across species anyway, um, the paraphilias are a much more male-centered mm-hmm. phenomenon than and it is a female-centered phenomenon. I mean, the DSM-5, if you look at all the, the paraphilia, sexual paraphilias, this is an overwhelmingly male uh, uh, psycho- psychiatric condition. Straight or gay. Straight or gay, right. yeah, absolutely. Um, let's talk just a little bit because it's so fascinating uh, about, I forget the technical term, people who are in love with devices or objects like the objectophiles the, the yeah. objectophile eiffel tower or you know your mm. iphone right so it's easy to it's easy to confuse those people with fetishists you know people that have like a panty fetish or something like that but the difference is that somebody with a fetish like a sort of your your conventional sort of run of the mill panty fetishist they are attracted to the category of panties uh, in the sense that um, they have made physical the panties have made physical contact with an attractive person that they find sexually appealing. Um, so somebody with a panty fetishist isn't going to go to you know Victoria's Secret and you know purchase a pair of panties and masturbate to you know um, a completely new pair of panties. They want a pair of panties that have been worn by a woman that they find to be sexually attractive. So that's very different from the objectophiles, which you're talking about. The objectophiles are people who are aroused by a particular object, um, not a category of object. So um, they're aroused by this set of panties, whether it's new or used, not not panties as a whole, um, because they, they detect a personality, basically, including um, a, a sexual personality in the object. Well, let's so, get away from panties so because, moving on, so, because yeah, that, you know, you th- when you think of panties, you think of a, a, a human body. Yeah. Well, let's talk about, you know, 
Yeah, so the objectophiles are attracted to like tables or chairs right. or ladders or flags or the Eiffel Tower, um, and it it is the particular object that they find to be sexually attractive and having a romantic relationship with this object, and they find they see it as a reciprocal uh, romantic relationship. They view the object as having sexual feelings for them as well. So Erica Eiffel is probably the best known example of an objectophile. Um, this is a woman that um, she she married the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> she adopted the last name. Um, and uh, I think they've since gotten divorced, but I'm not entirely sure about that. And she was technically, a, she was bisexual in the sense that the, she viewed the Eiffel Tower as being a woman, or uh-huh. being female, not a woman. But having a female essence, right? Um, but she'd also had relationships with uh, the, uh, um, uh, the the Golden Gate Bridge, I believe, in San Francisco, <laughs> and she and that was a male to her. Um, and she so she she went both ways in that in that sense of of being a bisexual objectophile. There's uh, a great storyline in uh, I think it's the show Boston Legal, where one of the lawyers is trying to have a relationship with a woman. Uh, it's a male lawyer and uh, a woman who um, has a thing for uh, some new electronic gadget that she's bought. I forget what what exactly it is. Not just a vibrator. No. Oh no. It's 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 like a smartphone mm. or a clock radio. I forget. Mm. And um, you know, it's a they can't really make it work at first. Anyway, they might give it a try later. I forget. I haven't. I was not a religious watcher of that program, but. Um, it gets in the way of their relationship because she's mm-hmm. got this thing with this thing. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose, I don't know if she would be sort of certifiably diagnosed as an objectophile, but that's, I mean, but these people can have, you know, they can have sex with other human beings as well. It's just that their primary arousal response is to objects. Um, and one of the actually interesting findings, it seems, uh, with the case studies at least, is that it's, they seem to be, uh, many of the objectophiles seem to be on the autistic spectrum mm. or have Asperger's syndrome. Um, and some of them, in re- sort of in relation to that, have what's called um, a personality synesthesia, where, um, you know, in, in more traditional sort of synesthesia, you find people that see colors when they look at letters right. or something like that and, and get that sort of uh, interesting sort of merging of uh, sensory uh, stimulation. But for people that have this personality synesthesia, they, they, they basically um, see personalities in objects or they confuse the, the sort of the human spectrum with the object spectrum or the animate with the inanimate spectrum and these, this sort of this um, merging of the, of the two categories. Fascinating stuff. Uh, the book is Perv. Read it and find out just how boring you really are probably. <laughs> or maybe find out that you um, – you know, you have some things that you always consider to be completely innocuous that the rest of the world might not. Mm-hmm. I hope so. Everybody's got a bit of a sexual deviant in them. Jesse Baring's book, Perv, The Sexual Deviant in All of Us, is available through that free audible.com audiobook offer I told you about at the beginning of the podcast. Just go to www.audible.com slash and go to Jesse's website, jessebearing.com, to see Jesse's recent appearance on the Conan O'Brien show. It was the funny. And that's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, and check out the collection of Scientific American ebooks, just $3.99 each, available for Kindle, The Endangered Nook, and the iBook Thingamajig. You can find them by going to our website and clicking on Products on the right near the top. 
and then on Scientific American eBooks. The latest eBook just came out. It's called The Changing Face of War. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is, you guessed it, at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Thank you.